0: had the opportunity to meet yet. I want to uh, extend a warm welcome to you here. I'm part of the leadership and teaching team here at Jericho Ridge and we are very happy to see you. Uh, You have come, if you're visiting, this is a fantastic time to come and participate in the life of Jericho Ridge because we're exploring as we start into this fall the very things that make us a family together uh, as a community. And really, they're kind of our values, our family values, the way in which uh, we operate together and do life together with each other. Uh, there are core values, and core values that for any organization or any family are kind of like promises that you make each other about how you're going to live uh, together. And so uh, these, uh, I promised you guys two weeks ago I'd tell you a little bit about how we actually got the values. Uh, that we have as an organization and so that's rooted a little bit in our history Uh, about uh, six and a half years ago Jericho Ridge started as a a satellite campus of North Langley Community Church up in Walnut Grove and so for two years uh, we were connected together and then in 2007 we came to what we had uh, described as full partnership where each entity uh, became a standalone organization And so as we came into that spring, we had full partnership at that Easter, at the two-year point, and it was always the vision of both the planting group and of North Langley to establish an independent and self-sufficient church that could reach Willoughby in the area uh, here in this neighborhood. And as we came to that two-year mark, we realized that uh, we had uh, not sat down and defined a lot of the DNA that was to characterize uh, Jericho Ridge. And we realized that Jericho had a unique DNA. It wasn't quite the same as North Langley's, uh, and it wasn't quite the same as really any of the other places where we had got the DNA from. And so the DNA was influenced by our parents, contained strands like Global Mission, which is a strong emphasis here at Jericho Ridge. You heard about that last weekend. Uh, It uh, had all kinds of different emphases. So we needed to name it and actually say, what do we value around here? What are the things that are really not negotiable in the way that we organize and do life together? And so we took six Sunday mornings in May and June of 2007, and we sat around round tables in the gym uh, at Ari e. Mountain High School where we first had begun to meet, and we asked questions like, what's important to us as a church? And we just started writing stuff up on the board and started saying, okay, let's talk a little bit more about that. Uh, Let's group those together. Let's figure out what that looks like. We ask questions like, what unique aspects of God's call are we going to live out together? Is there any particular things that are going to uniquely define us as a community of faith? And we searched the scriptures. We had some wonderful and animated discussions with one another. And we settled on the five core values that we have today. And these have really shaped the ethos and the ministries that you see around you uh, today at Jericho Ridge. So two weeks ago, we started into our fall teaching series, and we thought, well, let's call it Back to Basics. This kind of falls in the air, back to school. You know, you stock up on basics and school supplies and all of those things. And the idea behind it also was going back to the basics, returning again to that conversation that we had in 2007 of defining describing what is it that is going to really characterize the DNA of Jericho Ridge as a community of faith, our roots, the basic things that we're called to be and to do as a community as we listen to God and to each other. So two weeks ago, we looked at our first value and our first value is, this would be your time, transformational truth, that's right, transformational truth. And then last week, Pastor Keith assured you that though I'm famous for it, I did not make up this word. We adopted it from somewhere else. Our second value is? Local service, global and local service. It's not in your dictionary, but if you Google it, it is a real world. So therefore, Google has a final say. Um, Then this morning, we're going to look at our third value, authentic community. And then following, uh, in the two weeks following, we'll be looking at uh, another two. But the question that I have for you about authentic community as a value for us is why in the world... Do we have this value? What actually makes a community authentic? What is the thing that would characterize it that you would know that this value was being lived out? What is it that makes a community authentic? And you can't say authenticity because that's using a word that's already in the descriptor. So you have to come up with another one. We've talked about how in each of our values, the adjective... I'm pretty sure it's an adjective, that describes the second word, which I'm pretty sure is a noun, uh, is very important. When, uh, for example, in transformational truth, when your heart is transformed by truth, then your life will bring forth obedient fruit. So there's an active component that happens that God is doing in amongst us, that hearts are being, lives are being transformed. That's part of the reason why we have a Sunday morning gathering and environment to allow God to speak to each one of us by His Spirit and through His Word. We talked about last week how serving can sometimes catalyze something in your life that can't be catalyzed in any other way. You begin to get a picture of God's heart for those both locally and globally who are far from Him. And so that's uh, why we use the word local service and connect those two things. So why choose the word authentic to describe the community and the type of relationships that we want to see At Jericho Ridge. We could have chosen any word. We could have chosen loving relationships. We could have chosen... But we want to really isolate and understand this idea of a community that's authentic. So while you're thinking about that question, what is it that makes a community authentic? Let me play devil's advocate for just a minute and ask you a follow-up question that's related to this, and that is... Do you think that there's anything that makes Christian community unique in any way? Is there anything that's different about a community that is authentic, but that is also a Christian community? Because uh, in our core value statement, you'll find on page 27 of your Momentum journal, and this is a tool to... uh, help get you connected uh, with both God's word and with uh, the teaching series that are around here. So if you haven't picked one up, you can grab one uh, with Jody at the Welcome Center at any time throughout the course of our morning. But if you've got that, just flip open to page 27. And uh, right next to your place where there's uh, lines that you can doodle or make your grocery list or uh, think about what you're going to order for lunch when you go out for dinner with some friends after this, uh, we put the core value on page 27. And uh, the core value is this. When we're describing authentic community, we say it in these terms. God exists in community and He models for us what it means to be both vitally connected with Him and interdependent with one another. And so here, Jericho, we desire relationships with one another that are transparent, that are supportive, that are encouraging, rooted in our desire. To love as we have been loved by God. So, those descriptor words transparent, supportive, encouraging, connected, interdependent they're good words, but they still don't answer the question what might make Christian community different than other types of community? I mean, I could have, if I look at those words, I could have those types of relationships. With people on my sports team, I could have those types of relationships with people in a community organization, although frankly I haven't come across too many supportive encouraging interconnected stratas, but they might exist. I don't know. Um, You could find that in a great work environment somewhere. You could find it in a family system. So those words alone don't answer the question, is there anything that makes Christian community particular or unique? And so why should authentic community be a biblically defensible value as a church community for us? Well, one hint, a theological hint, comes to us in the opening phrase of that statement, that God himself exists in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so God models for us what it means to have healthy interdependent relationships. Another hint actually comes If you're in your Momentum Journal, you can look at some of the supporting scriptures. And another hint comes in those. And so you're likely expecting us to look at Acts chapter 2 this morning, maybe verses 42 to verses 7, and look at that authentic community that was modeled in the life uh, of the early church. But this morning, uh, we're going to kick it old school, and we're going to look at a very complex and bizarre story from the Old Testament that can help us unlock some of these questions for us. What is it that makes a community authentic? And are there any distinctive pieces that would make an authentic community a Christian community? Could you find anything unique about that? And so in this text, we're going to see that there are actually two accesses or axi, I don't know if that's really a word or not. Keith will tell me after, I'm sure. But there's a, there's a horizontal axis and there's a vertical axis. Just like Robin was introducing in worship this morning, there is, uh, that component exists there as well. So there's, there's a vertical axis for authentic community, and that relates to our relationship with God. And so this, let's just put at the top here, that this would be close to God, and that this would maybe then be far from God in some way. So that's the vertical access for community. And then we have the horizontal access for community as well. And let's put close on this side. So this is close to others. And this would be maybe distant from others, relationally or otherwise. So, um, so we're working with this access this morning to help us understand if there's interdependent or if there's any connectivity between these two axes as well. And so in this text in the Old Testament, we're going to see that there is a, a connectivity between the level of authenticity that I experience on this continuum, on the horizontal one, and the level of connectivity that I experience on this continuum in my relationship with God. And so we're going to see that these two variables are actually interdependently linked. I'm sure there's a fancy scientific or mathematical phrase or precise term for that. Or any of you math teachers, things—is there something that would relate those two variables? You should shout it out now. All right. I'm mostly focused on the social sciences. It's not my strong set. So, anyways, I'm sure there's a fancy mathematical term. You can email me later or post it on our Twitter feed. Everybody can figure out what that is. But uh, what you're going is that when one of these gets adjusted positively or negatively, it immediately impacts the other axis. And so if I'm growing in my relationship and proximity and intimacy with God, that will also have an impact on how I see those around me. Conversely, if I'm moving in either direction on this axis, that will also have a relationship on how I connect with God. So open your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 25. And if you're new or visiting with us this morning, and if you don't have access to a Bible on your phone, then you can head back to the Welcome Center, and Jody and Daryl are back there, uh, and there's Bibles for you there. There's a Momentum journal where you can take notes as well on page 26. And if you don't own a Bible, take that one home with you. It's our gift to you, and uh, we would love to connect with you and come to uh, assist you more in that process of understanding what God's Word uh, might look like as it takes root in your life in an authoritative way. So 2 Chronicles, uh, chapter 25, let me set the stage for us a little bit here. Now this section of the Bible uh, is written as a historical narrative. And so it's an accurate account of the conflict that existed in the Middle East, most particularly in the nation of Israel, a few generations after the absolute apex or zenith of Israel's nationhood under King David, one of the more prominent figures in the Old Testament. And if you're familiar with the story at all, after David, who is described as a person after God's own heart, who leads with wisdom and integrity and uh, really a a sense of expansive leadership that God has given to him, very shortly after this, uh, people's hearts turn away from God. The leaders of the nation and the kings of Israel uh, choose to forsake God. And so the nation actually breaks into two entities there's a northern entity called Ephraim or Israel and 10 of the tribes go and stick together and then there's a southern kingdom that's formed known as Judah and the relationship is not healthy between these two entities and so if you think that Middle Eastern conflict uh, over uh, land or any of these things is new to our century then read a little bit through Chronicles and Kings and you'll come to understand some history there uh, and try reading that and you'll see conflict. Uh, but I'm not actually going to read to the how the story resolves itself uh, in Second Chronicles 25 from verse 17 to the end. We're just going to go to verse 16, so you'll actually have to read that at home and figure out how the story ends. But our focus this morning is going to be on two characters in this text, the king and the man of God, or the prophet, an unnamed prophet who challenges him. And I'm going to begin reading in Second Chronicles chapter 25, verse 5, and when we get to verse 7, whoops, then it'll actually come uh, up on the screen uh, for you to have a look at there. So Second Chronicles chapter 25, reading in verse 5, the king's name is Amaziah. And so Amaziah has decided he's going to mount a bit of a military campaign. And so it says, then Amaziah organized the army, assigning generals and captains from all of Judah and Benjamin. He's in charge of the southern kingdom. And he took a census. And he found that he had an army of 300,000 select troops, They were 20 years old and older, all trained in the use of spear and shield. And he also then decided to pay about 7,500 pounds of silver, about four and a half tons, to hire 100,000 experienced fighting men from northern Israel. But the man of God came to him and said, Your Majesty, do not hire these troops from Israel, for the Lord is not with them. He will not help these people of Ephraim. If you let them go with your troops into battle, you will be defeated by the enemy no matter how well you fight. God will overthrow you because he has the power to help you or to trip you So about this time, it would be pretty fair game for you to be asking yourself, what in the world does this narrative about? And what does this discussion of Amaziah's army have to do with a core value of authentic community? Well, remember the first and primary axis of authentic community is the vertical axis. And so our first question is about proximity to God which is a question of intimacy with God. And so we've got some challenges to that happening both nationally and then individually as well. And in this text, we see Amaziah actually gets it right, which is a surprise for a lot of the people in uh, Second Chronicles. He actually makes a decision that he goes uh, and walks in obedience with. So Amaziah asks the man of God in verse 9, what about all the silver that I paid to hire the army of Israel? And the man of God replies to him, The Lord is able to give you much more than this. So Amaziah discharged the hired troops and sent them back to Ephraim. So he actually loses all of the money that he invested to hire them. It's an incredible act of obedience God. And it may not seem all that impressive until you actually start to do the math on this one. So he has 300,000 of his own army. He's decided he's going against Ephraim, a larger nation, that he probably should have a little bit of extra backup. And so he thinks, I know what I'll do. We've got money. We may not have extra people, but we've got some resources. So let's hire out uh, some mercenary soldiers. And so he he fishes around, gets 7,500 pounds of silver. Now, I'm not a commodities expert. And the math on this one's pretty complicated because you have to convert like troy ounces into then pounds and then pounds into tons and all of these things and multiply by the current value of silver and uh, which changes all the time. So that got me a little bit confused earlier this week. Uh, But finally I got it. And as near as I can tell, Amaziah has paid in today's currency $5.2 million for his hired help. So he's Going out on a limb here with this, he needs a victory. And so he's gone into the treasure war chest and he's found $5.2 million. He's wired it to them. They've got it already. And so they come down and then as they're getting ready to go out to battle, the man of God comes and says, um, hey, just as a note, if you want to win, you got to get rid of this uh, 100,000 people that you've hired. And his first question is a very logical one, but I'm going to lose my money that I've put into this project already. And God tells him not to use these guys. And so he says, "Uh, okay, God, um, what about the money? Which is probably a very reasonable question. And the prophet says to him, essentially, do you want God's help or not? Like, do you want to win this battle or not? And he thinks about it, and we don't have a whole lot in there. But he just says, eventually we come to understand that he kisses off on his $5.2 million of silver in order to actually be obedient to God. And when I read this, my immediate decision, or immediate thought, was, "Well, that was a stupid decision—like 5.2 million dollars and an extra 100,000 people in your army. Like that's that's just good battle planning and strategy, isn't it?" But the question that grabbed me as I reflected more on this was this question of this vertical access, and asking the question, "How much is God's help actually worth to me?" how much is God's help actually worth to you? If you had a choice between purchasing help for, let's reduce the number, because we probably, none of us have 5.2 million in silver sitting around somewhere ready to spend on something. Let's reduce the number. Let's say it was 520 bucks. Or let's say it was 52 bucks. On the one hand. And on the other hand, you had the choice of simply trusting in God. In this case... Or you trust a person actually, not even trusting directly in God. God didn't even actually directly speak to Amaziah. God spoke to a prophet who came and spoke to Amaziah. And so he had it on secondhand information that this was that God wanted him to do. So if somebody came to you and said, hey, listen, you got a choice. You can either trust God or you can spend your 520 bucks. Which would you choose? I don't know about you, but I'd be tempted to go for the money. Because... There's at least in our culture and in our understanding a sense of I can get something for a transaction that at least has a little bit more certainty to it than somehow this nebulous idea of trusting God. So if I have a choice to make, and on one hand I can trust God, or on the other hand I can pay for it myself, I'm usually going to pay for it myself. Because there's an element of certainty that comes into that equation. But you see. What God is saying to Amaziah through the prophet is, this actually has nothing to do with the money or the monetary value. It has to do with the question of how much God's help is worth to you. And the real question behind that isn't the dollar figure. The real question is, how deep and how sure is my confidence that God's way is the best way? When God says, let's take it out of the realm of the financial. When God says, in his word don't lie, but if I lie it gives me a better social standing or (laughs) an eye on things back there. So a circuit probably just went. But um, So if I have uh, the choice to be obedient to God and God says, hey, don't lie, but if I lie, something, at least in the short term, good is going to happen. I'm going to get out of a problem that I'm in or I'm going to bump up my social standing in some way. Usually my choice is going to be I'm going to want to take the easy... And so the question is, how much is God's help worth to you? How confident are you that God's way of doing things is the right way, is the best way? It's a good litmus test for vertical community, an authentic community with God. How much do you trust him? And amazingly, because there's not many people in 2 Chronicles that this happens to. Amazingly, Amaziah passes with flying colors. And so he demonstrates his amazing confidence in God. He receives this message from the man of God about uh, the, that they shouldn't go to war with these people. And so he gets rid of, he's like, fine, at a loss of $5.2 million to the treasury, I will go out and I will do this. So if we keep reading, he experiences this incredible military victory and spiritual victory. But sometimes, right after our greatest spiritual victory, we experience our greatest defeats. And so keep reading in verse 10, starting at the second half, and we'll carry on through uh, to the end of our text for this morning. And when I come to verse 14 and verse 15, I'm going to switch and read it uh, in the message translation, because there's a phrase in there that has a little bit more potency and that you probably don't hear usually or didn't even think was in the Bible. So uh, Second Chronicles 25, uh, 10b says, obviously, Amaziah dismissed the hired troops, sent them back to Ephraim. This made them very angry with Judah, and so they returned home in a great rage. Well, then Amaziah summoned his courage and he led his army to the Valley of Salt where they killed 10,000 Edomite troops from Seir. And then they captured another 10,000 and they took them to the top of a cliff and they threw them off, dashing them to pieces on the rocks below. So they had a great military victory. Meanwhile, back on the home front, the hired troops that Amaziah had sent home raided several of the towns of Judah between Samaria and Beth Horon, And they killed about 3,000 people and carried off great quantities of plunder. So when King Amaziah returned from slaughtering the Edomites, he brought with him idols taken from the people of Seir. And he set them up as his own gods. He bowed down in front of them and he offered sacrifices to them. And this made the Lord very angry. It's like a little understatement in the text. And so he sent the prophet to ask him this question. And in the message translation, it says that ignited God's anger, a fiery blast of God's wrath put into words by a God sent prophet. And the prophet says, what is this? Why on earth would you pray to inferior gods who couldn't so much as help and save their own people from you? God's weaker than Amaziah. And Amaziah interrupted him and said, did I ask for your opinion? Shut up or get thrown out. It's in the Bible. (laughs) Doesn't mean you get to use it everywhere you go today, just so you know. Uh, The prophet quit speaking, but not before he got in one last word. The prophet says this, I have it on good authority. God has made up his mind to throw you out because of what you've done and because you wouldn't listen to me. So Amaziah experiences this incredible military victory over the nation of Edom, which is vastly superior to him in every way. And so on the outside, he looks like this wonderfully successful king, but he's made a horrible spiritual decision. After declaring that God's help is worth more to him than $5.2 million, he essentially says, I know what I'll do. I'll make the idols of these people whom I have defeated my own idols. Yeah, because they were so strong, they could protect this nation from me. And so it's easy for us to look at this and say, Amasai, what were you thinking? You declare that God's help is worth that much to you, and that you trust and confidence in him, and then you go out and when you win, you throw it all away. Which can seem surprising, except that the author gave us a clue that this might happen in Second Chronicles 25, verse 2. And if you look back in the verse, in Second Chronicles 25, verse 2, it says, Amaziah did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, but not wholeheartedly. But not with his whole heart. See, he wasn't actually as devoted to God as he looked from his actions. And when trouble came, and when the Israelite troops do what troops that have been fired decide to do, He decides that maybe God's help really isn't worth it or wasn't worth it after all. And so what happens is that the vertical axis, for however high he was on that, begins to deteriorate. And so we notice that the horizontal axis begins to slip as well. Look particularly at the relationship between the man of God and between Amaziah. Notice that Amaziah's first response to the man of God who speaks truth into his life. It's a very positive one. He responds well. He questions it, but in the end he says, you know what, I trust you enough and I trust God enough that I'm willing to actually go out on a limb here and I'm going to walk in obedience to that. I will receive the truth that you've spoken into my life. But when the prophet comes back to him with actually a less expensive spiritual proposition get rid of the idols, those false gods, in which you have now decided to place your confidence and trust, but who couldn't even save their former masters from you, the relationship between the prophet and the king turns ugly really, really quickly. And it breaks down. And the prophet says to the king, this is wrong, you know that this is wrong. And the king says, shut it or I will have you killed. So the prophet responds, we'll see about that. As I reflected on this interchange between the two of them, and I reflected on the times in my life where people have had the courage and the wisdom to speak into my life and to call me out spiritually, it prompted me to ask some questions about this horizontal access of community. And the question that came to my mind is, how have I responded in the past when someone has challenged me spiritually? How have you responded when someone challenges you spiritually? Here we have Amaziah. And it's like if we pull it into a contemporary context. Here he was in church with one Sunday. His hands are raised in worship. He was belting out songs about, be my everything, God. You're number one in my life. I love you, Jesus. And then Monday morning, he's like, God, who's that? I don't know anything about this, God. I've got my own little show going on here. Thank you very much. I just had a great victory, so I feel pretty confident in my own abilities. Then someone speaks truth into his life. Someone has the guts to challenge him and say, you know what, Amaziah, I see some inconsistency in that. And uh, I want to challenge you to come back to God. And he says, shut up. I don't want to hear it. You see, your response when someone challenges you spiritually, indicates the level of authenticity that's present in that relationship that you have with that person. When someone challenges you spiritually and you respond graciously, it indicates that they both have the proximity and the authority to speak into your life. It also indicates that you have the humility to receive it. And so that relationship or that community would be probably characterized as an authentic one. And I think this is where we unlock that second question of the difference between Christian community and the kinds that are maybe authentic, but that I can find somewhere else. And the distinction of Christian community that we want to help each other understand is that in Christian community, our primary interest is not your comfort. The primary interest that you have in a relationship with someone else where you call each other to a deeper level of authenticity is that person's depth in their life and that person's depth in their walk with God and with other people. And so the distinction of Christian community is that we want to help each other grow and become deeper people and more authentic people. But that doesn't come when we just say nice, warm, fuzzy things to each other. It comes both when you are willing to speak truth into the life of others in whom you have a relationship with and also when you are willing to receive it. It happens when you are willing to get up in somebody else's face and say, do you know what? I think you and I both know that this is wrong and I challenge you to do something about it and I'm going to walk with you and help hold you accountable in that transition in your life. And this isn't easy. Because obviously it requires a balance between grace and truth. The New Testament uses the phrase, speaking the truth in love. And it is not easy to give this type of community or to receive this type of direction. And so the question is not only how do I respond when someone initiates this kind of spiritually authentic conversation with me, but also and this might be even a little bit harder. Am I willing to take the risk and speak the truth in love into someone else's life? Because that's increasingly rare in our world today. There's lots of people who will speak truth into your life. They may not do it from a position of wanting to help you deepen your horizontal community and connection with God and with other people. They may not do it in love and so it's a very difficult thing then to step out and actually engage in this type of action. And I have a theory which you're welcome to discuss and poke holes in about a possible explanation for why this is the case, why not many of us are willing to take the risk and speak truth into someone else's life. And I wonder if we don't experience this more because we most of us surround ourselves with a community of people that's so similar to us that they won't do this either. You see, it's very easy to have authentic community or pseudo-authentic community when everyone already agrees with me. When everyone is exactly like me. But Jesus reminds his followers when they're having a conversation about this and says, you know what? If you actually love only those who love you, what good is that? Anybody can do that. But I say love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Because God's picture of authentic community is much more complicated and much messier than the picture of community and much more costly than the picture of community that we're usually willing to submit ourselves to participating in. You see, it's quite easy for me to love my neighbors if they never play their music loud at 3 a.m., It's quite easy to love them when they don't park in my spot in front of the street, in front of my house. It's relatively easy for me to love people who are in the same socioeconomic sphere as I am. It's quite easy to have community with people who speak the same language as I do. It's relatively easy to have community with people who believe the same things about God and the Bible and about Christianity that I do. It's pretty easy to have community with people that shop at the same stores that I do. It's quite easy to have community with people who are parents of the nice kids in my class. It's easy to agree with those who pray the same way as I do in life group. But you see, that's not authentic community. One of the unique facets of Christian authentic community is that I am called by God not only to love and invite others into my life, who agree with me already, but also those who are profoundly different from me. Those who may challenge me in some profound ways. Those who will hold up a mirror to my life and say, what is it that you see? See, the man of God did this for Amaziah, and he did it at great personal risk. I mean, this is the king. And the king's authority is paramount, and it is at a very real risk to his own life that he said this to the king. I'm not even usually willing to say hard things to other people at the cost of making a minor adjustment to my spiritual life or relationship. So the team is going to come this morning and lead us in response and reflection in song. And as they do, I want to ask you a few questions to ready your heart for communion as we participate, which is an act of expression of authentic community. So there's a few questions for you, preparatory questions, to get your heart ready uh, for reflection and response. And the one question that I want to ask us is really first more a corporate question for us. And that is, do we need in any way as Jericho Ridge, or as a group of people, or as a life group, or however you would phrase that, to repent of an inaccurate picture of authentic community. Because so often I find that my vision of authentic community is a dream of my own creation. It's where an ideal place of love and safety, where nobody marches in and tells me what I don't do or do, what I do and don't have to do and doesn't ask me to change anything or challenge me in any ways. But the challenge factor is that that, if that's your picture of what goes on here at Jericho Ridge, that's actually not a church, that's actually a country club. And so if that's your picture of participating in the life of a faith community, then that's something that you need to repent of this morning because that is not God's picture that he has given us of authentic community here at Jericho Ridge. It's going to be messier and it's going to be more costly than that. It's going to involve a more radical commitment of time. It's going to involve radical hospitality and radical extensions of grace to people. And maybe today is the day when you look at your life and you say, you know what? I thought that I was coming for something else, but I need to repent. And maybe corporately we need to repent and invite a new vision of authentic community to grip our hearts at Jericho Ridge and transform our behavior. The second question that's related to that and it's related to that notion of 5.2 million dollars versus trust and confidence in God might for you today not be monetary but in each of us in our own lives there might be an area where you need to reaffirm and reassess your trust and confidence in God and if you can't think of an area in your life where you say I think pretty good then you may want to ask those who you're in relationship with already around you, who know you well and trust you and with whom you share life, and ask them and say, do you see any areas in my life that maybe I could trust God more fully with this morning? If you don't have anybody that's like that in your life, maybe your response today is to step out and seek that out and take some small steps. Maybe it freaks you out, but maybe you need to come to Group Connect tonight and start to invest in other people's lives and open your life to being invested in maybe it's time for you to jump in and allow other people to speak into your life it's not going to happen overnight but when it does an amazing gift of god has transpired because of your willingness to walk in obedience to that maybe you need to find a friend a friend who will be a spiritual mentor to you and ask them hey listen do you think there's any areas in my life i need to respond to god in in repentance and i need to reaffirm my trust and confidence in God. Maybe you just need to do that personally this morning and ask God directly, God, by your Holy Spirit, would you whisper to me any areas that I do not have full trust and confidence in you this morning? Would you give me the grace and the strength to walk in more faithful obedience to you? The last question that we want to ask, and it relates to the New Testament description of communion, is, Maybe there's an area in your life or a person against whom you hold bitterness or resentment in your heart. Maybe someone challenged you at some point in your walk and you responded like Amaziah did and you said, get out of here, I don't wanna hear this. And however distant that has been from you, you've held an attitude of resentment towards that person. You've said, they don't have any authority to speak into my life, but somewhere inside, you know that what they were saying was true whatever their motivation was. And so the question for you is, how have I responded to those who have spoken truth into my life? Maybe this morning you actually need to walk in humility and repentance and make that right. Maybe you need to text them or call them right now and say, you know what, God's brought this to my mind, and and when you said that, my response was completely inaccurate and was unhealthy. The New Testament instruction to us is clear that as we come to the table of communion where the bread represents Christ's body that was broken for us and the cup represents his blood that was shed for us, that if you have anything against anyone else or if God points out areas in your life that he's asking you to deal with, you need to do that before you come to the communion table. And so you may say today, you know what, I'm not ready to participate in any way. And that's fine. The way in which we take communion here at Jericho Ridge is... The team will lead us through some songs and they may be new to you. So don't feel like you have to sing in any way. At some point when you feel ready, personally, you can get up and move to one of the tables, either at this side or at that side. You can take the bread, take the cup, come back to your seat, spend time in reflection and prayer, and then participate uh, just as an individual when you're ready. And so if you don't need to participate or don't choose not to in any way today, no one will judge you in any way. This is just between you and God and making sure that you have everything aligned in your horizontal relationships as well. And so we're going to just invite the team to lead us in some uh, seeing and some reflection and ask those questions. We'll leave them up on the screen for a few minutes as you ask God if there's anything that you need to deal with this morning. When you feel ready, a table is open to anyone who names Jesus as Lord, as forgiver of their life. And we'll have our prayer team available. Dave and Jackie will be over at the side and I'll be over at this side as well. And so if you want to talk with anybody about anything that you've heard this morning, you want to respond either in thanksgiving to God or if you want to say, you know what, I have something that I need to pray for. There's many, many prayer needs in the life of our church right now that many of you are aware of. And maybe you just want to come to us and say, hey, can we pray together for Al? who just got out of hospital yesterday. Can we pray together for Kevin and Kristen Clausen, whose grandfather passed away? There's many, many needs. So. I invite you to just take that opportunity to do that this morning as we respond in song to the teaching of God's Word this morning. So, whenever you're ready, head to the communion table or for prayer, and the team will continue.